If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Dr. Joseph Warren. He'll be answering our call in the early morning of June 17, 1775. Just hours after this call, he will discover that there is a battle about to take place at Bunker Hill. He will die in that battle at the age of 34. But there was no reason for the brilliant Dr. Warren to be on the front lines at all. Three days earlier, he'd been commissioned as Major General. He was an inspirational leader, drafting the Suffolk Resolves, advocating resistance to Parliament and the Intolerable Acts. He was president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, which was the highest position in the revolutionary government. When the British regulars were marching to Lexington and Concord in what would be the first battle of the American Revolution, Warren called his good friend Paul Revere, instructing him to make his famous ride, warning the people and preventing the capture of John Hancock and Samuel Adams. Warren was a giant in U.S. history and would have played a significant role in the creation of the United States had he lived. But he also was a man of action, and when he reached the battle at Bunker Hill, he approached the other generals and said, Send me where the fighting is fiercest. After realizing he would not relent, they did as he asked. When the Redcoats realized they had killed the influential Dr. Warren, they bayoneted his body so many times it was unrecognizable. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and physicians everywhere, I give you Dr. Joseph Warren. Hello, Dr. Warren. Is that you? Why, yes. Who might this be? Sir... I I am so excited to speak with you on this day. My name is Tony Dean. I'm calling you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding, it's called a smartphone. It allows us to speak as if we were standing exactly six feet from one another. It also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And I know these last few months have been very difficult for you and the people of your time. I was hoping that I could ask you some questions, but before I do, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions you might have first? Firstly, how did you send this contraption to me? And two, I am pressed for time, but I am feeling quite conversational after the dealings I've just had, so hopefully we will not be taking too much of uh, what is... Uh, considered the morning of the 17th of June. It's the morning of the 17th of June right now? Is the sun up yet? No, not for some hours. I've arrived back to Cambridge quite late. Okay. Well, let me answer your first question first. In the future, there's all kinds of strange technology that allows us to communicate in in all kinds of different ways. So the conversation that we're going to have right now is just for the benefit of the people in the future. Nobody in your time will will ever know about this. And so it is very hard to describe how this is done. But I will tell you this. If you saw everything that was available in our time, you would be totally amazed. As far as the amount of time we have to speak here, Your life is an example, in my opinion, of the way people should live. It's honor and being industrious and and being useful and and serving. 
And that's why I wanted to make this call. So as I'm asking you the questions, if, if we run out of time, if something happens where you have to leave, then that's fine. You just tell me and we'll cut it off. But I promise you this, this time will be very well spent for people in the future and I won't use any more of your time than you have. Is that fair? Well, when you put it that way, I think we can spare some time and then your flattery. I'm actually kind of grown amazed at this device that you've sent me. And you say that I can't use this to talk with others during my time. Well, you could if everybody in your time had one of those. In our time, everybody has one. But in addition to having them, you have to build these giant metal structures everywhere where that they, can, they have a line of sight where they can see each other so that these invisible waves that come from the phone that communicate the words allow them to transfer from one place to the other. So even if five or six people that you needed to communicate with them had them in your time, they'd have no way to use them because all of that other support, it, it wouldn't be there. I suppose in a, in a way it would be almost like if you had a military all set up, but none of them had guns or musket balls. They're, they just wouldn't have any value. But if I could, I'd, li I'd like to ask you about Paul Revere first. I understand that you're good friends with Paul Revere. Is that correct? Paul Revere is one of my dear friends. And as you were talking and explaining this device of which you sent me, I just was thinking of how horribly convenient your time must be because it takes my friend Paul Revere five days at best to travel via horseback from Boston all the way to Philadelphia. So the fact that possibly we could communicate just by phone and by and large good sir, musket balls and artillery and all sorts of military weapons are in great need. If I could just call New York or anyone in Pennsylvania for any assistance with this device, I can rest assure you that our efforts here in my time would be far more efficient. Oh, you are, you are more correct than you know. I, I will tell you, it's interesting, though, because when you look at this from a distance and you look at the, this device that we're talking about, the smartphone, and you think about how convenient th th this is, it is terribly convenient, and everybody has one. It allows them to communicate and do everything that you just asked about. But it has also had a side effect that is unexpected, and that is because it is so convenient, people of this time are actually fairly lazy, and they are not as productive as they could be because things are so convenient. And so... A lot of people in this time complain about the fact that things are so convenient because of that reason. Doesn't that sound strange? It does sound strange. And may I ask, are, able, are people able to access forms of literature on this device as well? Absolutely. I know that you have written a lot, and that is something that you would have loved. And I'll give you an example of, like, for this conversation, this obviously wouldn't be written literature, but this conversation... I'll be able to provide this information to billions of people. Anybody that would want to come and listen to our conversation in the future could just pop on this and listen to it without any effort at all. And they also have access to books that were written in current times and, and hundreds of years ago. And they can do it all on that device. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Truly incredible. Yeah, it well, is. And I must tell you, and, and just because maybe people who will hear this don't know, but we have to wait for some of these pieces of literature to reach our very favorite bookstores and libraries if they're even set up. And uh, if you all are complaining about this and you're able to access 
hundreds of years worth of work, then I say that you must put down your grievances and enjoy every single moment that you have. Are any of these luxuries because of the efforts that we're doing now, may you tell me? Most definitely. And, and that's something I want to tell you right now. I know that these last, especially these last 60 days, have been extremely difficult for you. And I just want to assure you that the effort that you're putting forward right now and the sacrifices that I know that you are making, they are worth the effort. And so I would encourage you to give all that you have as you have throughout your life so far. So yes, it will definitely, definitely be, be worth your effort. And I appreciate that, good sir, I made that. I, I hope that does help because I'm telling you, I don't know if a lot of people in this time would do as well as you are in your time right now. Could I, could I go back and ask you a little bit about Paul Revere? It, it, because his name is very, very well known in our time, specifically for the ride that you sent him on. And I, I wanted to ask first, though, is he your dentist? I read that somewhere. Well, Paul Revere does dabble in some dentistry on top of being one of the most busiest silversmiths in all of Massachusetts Bay. Yes, he has helped me with a couple of terrible toothaches that unfortunately I cannot perform myself, of course. And although I have great faith in my apprentices, I trust Paul Revere like a brother. So he has procured some great fine ivory teeth for me and installed them with gold wiring for the teeth that were decaying. So he does dabble in some dentistry. Uh, but I might ask, which ride are you speaking of? Because I feel as if he is more famous for one of the other rides that maybe weren't so quite recent. The ride that I'm talking about is when, when the British were coming to Lexington and Concord in, uh, in April 18th of 1775. But was, was there another ride well, that I'm not thinking about? Well, Mr. Paul Revere actually got his first popularity with his horse rides, delivering this, our Suffolk resolves to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. It was a feat that no one could think was possible before we set up our committees of correspondence. But as well as a typical eight-day horse ride, and I believe I did mention this, from Boston to Philadelphia, given to a good horse rider, Paul was able to achieve it in just five days. We were able to ratify the Suffolk Resolves and send those all throughout the colonies in much quicker time because of the different routes that we had established and because of Paul's ingenious in terms of the routes and that which he set up to and from Philadelphia, from Boston. But that news and that ride actually reached all the way to London. So that is actually how many in Great Britain know Paul Revere as of right now. Now, I'm not sure if they've even gotten word just yet on his most recent adventures. However, I'm sure that some form of letters of our exploits as of late will be reaching London in no time. We have had some difficulties, of course, trying to cross enemy lines to and from with our communications. But the one that you are speaking of done, uh, in the alarming Lexington and Concord of uh, the incoming Army's troops. Now, I must remind you, sir, as well, right now we are still considered British peoples. We are still colonists of Great Britain. We do still toast to our great sovereign, King George III. However, we will not be oppressed under the tyranny of his ministry, nor of the House of Commons or the General Court here in Massachusetts Bay. But we are still British as of right now. However, our American identities are for sure taking full fold throughout all of the colonies, I should add, that we are quite united as of late, uh, despite the quarrels that we first came to, especially with the southern colonies. May, may I ask you, what is the impression in your time of the southern colonies versus what we consider New England? 
I don't think in our time there is a huge division in the two. I'm, I'm hesitant to give you too much information about what the future looks like, but I, I don't think that, in, I think in the future you'd be surprised at how united the whole unit is instead of thinking of the South and the North or, you know, Massachusetts making, you know, their own government or trying to manage themselves or, you know, any of that. It, it's just one government in the future. Well, that is quite interesting. As of right now, it is the Southern colonies that are, how would you say, getting in the way of doing certain things that need to happen governmentally. I mean, we cannot govern the people as well as participate in a war with possibly the greatest army the world has ever seen if we are not truly united. Now, if it is looked in your time as all of us are united and that we formed as one, and that is what it comes of to all of this mess, by God, then our mission has been achieved. But <laughs> well, right now... It is the southern colonies giving us the most problems. And I'm sorry if I interrupt. I'm trying to get used to this device. Really, is anyone complaining about this? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it, it sounds hard to imagine, doesn't it? It is. And I must admit that now, since we've started talking, I appreciate this conversation. And I've had a long evening. I had to meet with several members of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. The deliberations went into the late evening, and I'm feeling in need of a drink. So I have started to sip on some brandy. If you are sipping on anything good, sir, I welcome it as well. And it seems I have some time to not be bothered. So hopefully we'll be able to stick around with this conversation longer. Well, I very much appreciate that. Let, let me go back to you had mentioned the southern states are getting in the way. When you say you're having trouble with the south, who's the person standing in the way the most? I'm not sure it can be sent to any one particular person. However, all of our colonies operate under separate charters under the governance of Great Britain. So we all have essentially all different rights. We have different ways of economy. Other colonies are more deeply embedded in slavery, are more deeply embedded into the trades and commerce in the Caribbean, and others have great interests abroad across the North Sea in Great Britain as well and in Europe. So in terms of import and export, in terms of the livelihoods, some decisions that we make here as, as a single mind can greatly impact other countries. For example, here in Boston, now that our routes to obtain certain grain have been altered by this blockade by the British Army in Boston, and now that we are stationed here in Cambridge, we have had to go to other sources for this grain. And by and large now, this change in trade could impact the thousands of lives in Ireland, could impact thousands of lives in the Caribbean. Our decisions are not taken lightly, and it doesn't involve just us anymore here in Massachusetts Bay, Rhode Island and New Hampshire and Connecticut. They have all stepped up and are here with us, and we just hope that more support can come from our sister colonies in New York and Pennsylvania. North and South Carolina and Virginia especially. Virginia is far, has far more wealth than we could obtain here in Massachusetts Bay. However, I should say that John Hancock would probably have a word in saying with that. He, by and large, who is also my good friend, probably has a lot of people beat in terms of what is in his pockets. His pockets are quite full, aren't they? Yes, yeah, so he actually obtained most of his wealth from his uncle, but the Mr. John Hancock is a great mind and, of course, is the president of the now Continental Congress in Philadelphia. 
probably much to the dismay of our good friend, Mr. Samuel Adams. Both of those men seem to never get along at time to time. It's far amazing that they both took the trip to Philadelphia together on this most recent journey. They have been there since April, of course, since the happenings here in Massachusetts Bay with Lexington and Concord. Of course, with also, I must mention, in case anyone from your time is looking into the news and facts of what has been happening here, the second half of the 19th of April here just recently, most of the fighting actually occurred in West Cambridge and Monotony. I don't know what those areas are called in your time. Hopefully they abide by the same name. You're talking about the battle that took place on April 19th, is that correct? Correct, sir. I know that is the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Are those different than the places that you just said? No, that seems to be going to be the moniker now for the battle itself. But it actually spread throughout all the way from Boston all the way to Concord, which by and large, Lincoln and Concord are probably the most western parts of the fighting that occurred that day. But the entire route itself is spanned of almost 20 miles of countryside. So you have from Boston all the way to Concord and back. The majority of the clash with Lord Hugh Pusey's troops actually occurred again in West Cambridge. They were stationed at Lexington trying to relieve Colonel Francis Smith, who faced off against several militia at the Concord Bridge. And then as he returned and was left running for his life as well as the rest of his troops, Lord Hugh Percy thought that he could scare us with six-pound cannon. However, he was forced to retreat with that cannon, which slowed the entire train itself, and we were all bottlenecked at West Cambridge and Monotony. So the entire day itself, we have labeled it Lexington and Concord for the papers, but rest assured, the second half of the day, which is by far my favorite day to watch the bloody backs run back through Charleston Neck and try to make way with their lives, I think people need to start looking at more of the details, and maybe they'll be able to spread the word of what actually happened that day. I wasn't aware how spread out this battle was, but I think you're right. The newspapers just kind of want to circle a spot and put a name on it, and so they say Lexington and Concord, and they just put a circle on it and say, oh, that's where it happened. But you're saying this was quite a bit more widespread. Yes, I would imagine by the counts that we've had that second that the second half of the day, which the majority of the fighting happened in West Cambridge and Monotony, was actually accounted for half of the casualties on both sides of the conflict, the British Army and ourselves and the militias. You were in that battle, weren't you? Yes. So I arrived onto the field with some of the Danvers militias. We purposely planned. Now, I don't know how much information I should be saying, but I think since we're beyond that point in almost 60 days, as you said, beyond the battle, I think it's safe to talk about. Yeah, and if I could just say anything that you share here, there's no way anybody in your time can hear this. So you're completely safe. And everything that's happened is in a book somewhere already. Well, you know, we have a rumored spy, of course, so I have to always be careful. I understand. So by the time I learned that fighting had occurred in Lexington, it was about 7 to 8 a.m. on the morning of the 19th. I made my way across ferry to Charlestown, got a horse, and proceeded to make my way to the rest of where the Committee of Safety was stationed in Watertown at the time, and as well as the Danvers militias, as I mentioned. Myself and General William Heath rode on horseback ahead to alert alert the other towns that we would be basically circling the British Army as they made their way back to Boston. Now, I don't think the British Army anticipated so many of our militias to be ready in arms. 
So what we did was, as we rode, we would alert militias further ahead than the next one to prepare them so the British Army never really got rest as they retreated all the way through the countryside. But once they reached Cambridge, we flanked them with Colonel Thomas Gardner's troops from Brookline. He has a militia mainly of Cambridge men in which they flanked from the south. So unfortunately, we couldn't keep them on the field much of that day or else it would have been complete annihilation of them, I must admit. And I'm not trying to sound overly confident and arrogant about it, but if Colonel Pickering's troops in Salem had made their way from up north far quicker than they did, I believe that we would have had them blocked off from making any sort of retreat past those fields. Wow. So you had the upper hand by a lot. Well, for months they accused us of being noisy cowards, and then they learned very quickly that we weren't. <laughs> Let, let, me, let me go back for a minute, because there's something that you had said about how the colonies operate individually. What you're describing sounds very foreign to me, because what I hear when you describe the colonies acting individually, it, it almost sounds like a bunch of individual countries. It doesn't sound like they're all one British country or they're all one American country. It sounds like they're all original countries. Is that, is that what it feels like? It is, because each colony actually technically has its own charter. Now, of course, again, we are all under the rule of King George III. We are all under the governance of Great Britain, but we all operate under separate charters. So if you compare the charters of, say, Massachusetts Bay, which was established in 1691, it would differ far from the charters of, say, New York or Virginia or even Georgia. I must also note for you, sir, that we are not British citizens. We are colonists. So however high of, up the hierarchy someone climbs in the class, in whatever class they may want to achieve, whether it be a gentleman or someone who is great in their trade, they are not considered a British citizen. So that is one of the main sparks of this entire, what is now being called a revolution. Well, um, and that, revo that revolution did not start on just 60 days ago or with any fighting either. That was because of these constant deliberations and acts passed to tax us and to have certain rights stripped away from us. It would seem to be every so few years. We would have these acts passed. We would rebuke them. They would get repealed. But then something else would take its place. And that's been the case here in Massachusetts Bay for over at least a decade. Well, this has to be incredibly frustrating for you personally, because my understanding is, is that you went to Harvard. How many years were you at Harvard? Were you at four years? I was at Harvard for four years. I've entered, I was 14 in fall of 1755, and then I completed my studies in spring of 1759. Okay. So you, you went to Harvard. You became a doctor. You're a well-educated man. And because you are in the colonies, there is absolutely nothing that you can do to be seen as a British citizen. Where, on the other hand, if there's a guy that didn't go to Harvard and didn't go to Oxford and he picks up the trash, because he was born British, he's a British citizen. Is that correct? Technically speaking, yes. Although I will say that there's nothing that we should say about the lower class of people to pick up the trash or do some of the more hard labors of our society. I believe some of the working class people are more morally righteous than some of the people that we would consider gentlemen, even as British citizens. Some of my adversaries, I may, I may tell you, sir, actually I've heard referred to me as the pale-legged milk boy from Roxbury still. 
Um, that is a reference to my my family. Actually, it grows some of the finest apples in all of New England. It's actually called the Warren Buffett. When I was a child, market days, which were Thursdays, I would travel with my father, who was also named Joseph, and we would travel to Boston for the market, and we would sell our apples and also our milk from the cows that we had on our farm. And so all of the aristocrats who, and the Tories who had come through in the plaza and saw me as a young man, of course, my father, who was not only an apple farmer, but a judge in Roxbury, so he was quite well known. And again, the apple itself in our estate is quite well known throughout this colony. And so because they saw me as a young boy selling milk, all of, any, any action that I do is, of course, I can't be anything more because only, because what is, how did they word it? Only a pale-legged milk boy from Roxbury could ascend the hierarchy of American society. And <laughs> it, it sticks to my craw still to this day. <laughs> Although it still does make me laugh. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's great. And in the future, there are certain parts of the world where there's a system still in place that you're born who you are. So if you're born a street rat, you're a street rat. In America, you could be delivering milk or making sandwiches and, and then grow up to be one of the most powerful people. You could make something useful that people use everywhere, and then you could be the person that makes this smartphone, and all of a sudden you become one of the richest people in the world, even though you were delivering milk or delivering apples, as you described. Uh, by the way, the apples that you were talking about, I was reading about this yesterday, and I came across this, some stories of this Warren Russet apple, and apparently in the oh. property that your family owned, these still exist to this day. Yeah, very well. Well, I believe that the variety itself is the first variety in North America to be grown. It was actually brought over from England by my grandfather. My great-grandfather was a mariner, but my grandfather, Joseph Warren I, was the one who planted the apple farm. So my, my grandfather brought the variety to North America, and yes, I, I'm actually delighted to hear it still exists. Is it still called the Warren Russet? From my understanding, I had spent hmm. my time researching other topics about your life, but I came across that tree, and, and I just kind of just wrote it off as like, ah, uh, that you know, that that's just some useless fact. And then, sure enough, in our conversation, <laughs> it comes up. Now, the next time that I'm in that area, that's what I'm going to be looking for. I'm going to be looking to see if I can get some of those apples. Well, it is a very hardy apple if you ever come across them, and uh, you can store them by by and large throughout the entire winter. They make great ciders. They're great in pies as well. And again, my grandfather brought it from England. Did you know that apples actually aren't even from North America? This is something that us English folk and from Great Britain have brought over to this, these lands, which, of course, the original settlers here did not know what to do with the native species of plants or vegetation. Uh, so many Englishmen have done this, including, again, my grandfather, plants, things that English people knew how to grow, which apples, ciders, Cider mills have existed in England for centuries, even by my today's standards. If you do come across them, it is a great apple, and I actually have some with me. It reminds me of home while I'm here in Cambridge. Well, I, d I definitely will look that up. I, I want to go back for a minute. Some more questions that I wanted to ask you about Paul Revere. You were talking about the ride that he make, which he does in uh, five days, where it takes everybody else eight days, where he delivered the Suffolk Resolves. Or my understanding is that he delivered those 
to the Continental Congress, and that was something that you had written in response to what they call the Intolerable Acts. Could you speak on this a little bit? I took it upon myself to write the majority of the Suffolk Resolves. Now, I met with delegates from the other counties, and we had several drafts to the document itself, but um, it ended up being ratified by the Continental Congress within a day's time after arriving by delivery, of course, by my friend Paul Revere. The intolerable act that you speak of, or the coercive act, as they've also been called, were passed by a British parliament and specifically resolved the following, that you must boycott British goods and imports, curtail exports, and refuse to use British products. Our resolve also said that we pay no obedience to the Massachusetts Government Act or the Boston Port Bill, which uh, by and large shut down the entire port of Boston. That was not any small decision by the British government, and that Boston has become one of its most economically successful ports in the entire empire. So they are willing to not only close down the port itself and hurt themselves, but hurt us in the process for retaliation for, of course, the Tea Party, which I'm sure you heard of as well. This is a retaliation for the Boston Tea Party, then? Yes. So the Boston Port Bill is, by and large, just retaliation for the Boston Tea Party itself. We must say that the Boston Tea Party was not in any way to be, how should I put this, no morally righteous person could allow a one company or one entity to control the entire trade of an industry. And that is what the British government proposed for the East India Trading Company. This company is the most profitable company in the entire world. And their decision to give basically exclusive rights to tea trade snuffs out any dust settler or tradesman that is also within that trade. So many small businesses and so many of the, what you would call the working class. And we can accept monopolization of our trade in any way, shape, or form. If we allow it with tea, then what what comes next? And us here in Massachusetts Bay know what it means when we pass these acts and then they're repealed and something else pops up right away. So these intolerable acts in general, the Boston Port Bill, which shut down our port, the Massachusetts Government Act, which basically put us under the direct governance of a military governor, Mr. Thomas Gage, in our resolves, we demanded the resignations of those appointed to positions under the Massachusetts Government Act as well. We don't feel that any person that is allowed office by no election and forced to rule us with force shouldn't be allowed to govern us and has no right to. And by and large, Thomas Gage helped write all of these terrible acts as well in Great Britain. Tell me about Thomas Gage. Have you spent much time with him? Well, things are going well for a while. As you may or may not know, I was not able to serve in the General Assembly here in Massachusetts Bay. I've never held political office until what is entitled our extra-legal government of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. However, Mr. Thomas Gage arrived with very fair demeanor about him, and I was fortunate to become his doctor as well as the doctor to his wife. And we're, we're talking about Mr. General Gage. Thomas Gage. This is an English general, correct? Yes, he's, uh, he's actually been a commander of the British Army for quite some time. And while these intolerable acts were being drafted, he was actually in London. Basically, he was sent back with these intolerable acts to enforce them upon the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Oh. But since then, 
since his arrival. He has gone from inviting me to his inner circle of deliberations. I have been included in discussions and how the citizenry can proceed under these intolerable acts. Hopefully, some of those discussions were the result of several of our roads actually uh, being, becoming paved. Because of the closure of the Boston port, many people were not able to work. So we were able to come to an agreement that since we were already looking to pave our roads here in the town of Boston, we should finally get those people to work and make this a reality. So at first it seemed things were going well, but I must say that it seems that those serpents and harpies that serve for the British crown and continue to be Tories despite every single grievance that has come up and all of the things that have happened and been said, and he is, seems to be just directly under their influence. And as much as I may have considered him even close to as a friend, I believe the things that have happened within the last 60 days will sever our ties. What are some of the things that have happened in the last 60 days that make you feel that there's no chance to reconcile that relationship? Because I'm su- I didn't realize that you were his doctor. I mean, you can't get much closer than somebody being your doctor unless you marry somebody, I suppose. What, what are some of the things that he's done that make it where it's, you can't reconcile this relationship? Well, I'm sure he didn't appreciate the cannon being stolen from him, I should say, and uh, he seemed to be quite alarmed and (laughs) furious about that instance. With his position as the military governor and as a general in the British Army, I don't believe that any sympathies can be had towards us anymore. It's very unfortunate, and I think that hopefully the press and the people also keep in mind that his wife also is an American. She's an American from New Jersey, and wow. she, is very, she is very sympathetic for her countrymen. And I think that she was a sound of reason for him. But what's happened since Lexington and Concord, and I believe also the incident uh, of us burning one of their warships at the Battle of Chelsea Creek not too long ago will also uh, deter him from any friendly relations in the near future. He might not be willing to overlook that. No, no, but it was a it was a well-deserved signal. So, have you heard of the Battle of Chelsea Creek yet? It doesn't sound familiar, actually. P- please tell me. So this is a quite particular. Uh, <laughs> this is actually a great victory for us as of late, and it has definitely uh, changed the tide, as it were. Although they were not expecting the tide to change on them, and I will get to what happened. So. We sent out a regiment of our troops, mostly of New Hampshire men under the direction of Colonel John Stark, and they were foraging on Noddles Island, different resources, hay, livestock, and basically anything that moved. It has become quite troublesome to feed an entire army of people as well as the citizenry here in rural Massachusetts as sure. the port of Boston has closed off to us. Yeah, what so year we sent, is this? This is just recently. This is just a few weeks ago. Oh, okay. Uh, so... In what occurred, so we sent the New Hampshire men out there, and they're they're shooting at everything that moves, and they spent several hours there. And then, as time goes on, they decided that they should just burn the remaining hay that they can't bail themselves and whatever structures are left on on the island. This, of course, caught the attention of the Royal Marines and the warships that were close by. So, of course, that we had to send another force of my, consisting of leading myself with uh, General Israel Putnam and several other troops to back up the New Hampshire men. 
But what's occurred here is that the HMS Diana decided to go along the Mystic River and try to confront us. But it didn't anticipate the tide here in Massachusetts Bay. If the tide is high, then this ship would have had a chance. However, when the tide is low, it basically <laughs> becomes sand and dirt. So this huge warship is stuck in the sand. And we actually went out and told them that we would spare them. Come off the ship, surrender yourselves now, and no one will get hurt. Well, they decided instead, as General Israel Putnam offered, uh, you know, our conditions, they fired a cannon at us. And so we decided to then shoot at them, of course, and then they were left scurrying away in the tides of the Mystic River back to the embankments where they were relieved by other uh, troops that were incoming. So as a last gesture, after we had stripped this ship of all of its available cannon and munitions and whatever supplies that we could grab, we decided to send a little hello to Mr. Jamas Gage and set it ablaze. And so it could be seen for miles. It has become quite the aggravation as we hear uh, things are intensifying here in Boston. In fact, I know that some troops are now on their way to fortify a different position here in rural Massachusetts and hopefully to encircle uh, the British Army as they're camped in Boston. But so if anyone from your time is, is interested in a more recent story that it may not be publicized much, I would say look at the Battle of Chelsea Creek and maybe bear witness to the first naval victory of the Americans without one ship to their name. That is incredible. <laughs> Before everybody starts shooting and stealing cannons and threatening people, you have to just be sitting on the banks watching this happen, knowing that this ship is just going to be stuck in the sand, just laughing hysterically, probably drinking a beer watching it happen. You are right, my good sir. I really was because I, I was actually stationed at Castle William, which is not, obviously is on Nattles Island. And so I've, I've known this terrain for several years, and I could just tell that this tide was far too low for this ship to try to navigate <laughs> itself. It almost wrecked itself free. But it didn't quite make it, so it tipped over on its side, and yes, it is now in ashes in the Mystic River. Have you ever spoken to John Adams, perhaps? You know John very well. Yes. Castle William is actually how I first met John Adams. Uh, I'm not sure if you're too familiar, but we actually had a smallpox epidemic here in Massachusetts in 1764. I was just coming off of my apprenticeship under the Dr. James Lloyd here in Boston. So as smallpox spread, the, the government decided to move all governmental matters to be handled in Cambridge. Meanwhile, we would set up a quarantine and inoculation center at Castle Willing. At this time right now, you're talking 1764. We're, we're going back a ways here. You're a doctor at that point. Are, are you 23 years old in 1764? Is that right? My birthday is June 11th, so I think I met John Adams, and he came in April of that year to get inoculated against the disease. So, yeah, it's 22, 23, yes, just about to come 23, but so still fairly young. The smallpox epidemic, I mean, how big was this? Inoculation was still very much frowned upon, mostly by the rural counties, and especially those who have more religious feelings towards them. Inoculation was only introduced in Massachusetts Bay or in general in North America, as I believe, in 1721. So it was a, it's a fairly new concept even by today's standard here in 1775. So in 1764, 
We had very much an affront to trying to contain the disease. Many people decided to not be inoculated and to not close their businesses. And we were speaking of Paul Revere. One of his daughters was sick with smallpox, and he himself had to shut his business and quarantine his family for several months. It actually caused him to the point of almost complete debt. It was quite a hard time for us here in Massachusetts Bay. And, of course, because Boston is so economically successful for the British Empire, it was hard to even make ground and make up for what we had lost in 1764, which is why the Stamp Act being passed the following year in 1765 was so hard. We had just come out of a very economically hard time here. And so to then tell us that all of our things that basically anything written on paper is going to be taxed is absurd. We haven't even felt like we had accomplished what we wanted to against the, the risk of the system. Basically what happens is 1764, you're 23 years old, you're a doctor, and you jump in, you're trying to make a name, and so you start inoculating people for smallpox. And I, I even read one time, by the way, that when people couldn't afford it, that you would do that for free. Is that true, by the way, before I finish my question? Eventually, yes, once I was able to establish my practice. By this time, once, once the epidemic happened, I was just coming off my apprenticeship, but I was actually asked to join the group of doctors which were stationed there because my mentor, Dr. James Lloyd, was actually supervising the entire operation. So he included okay. me. I had actually been inoculated against the disease myself as a child. So that was my first interaction with smallpox and inoculation. My, my grandfather, actually, Dr. Samuel Stevens, was the one who inoculated myself and my three brothers. Oh, okay. uh, so so I, had, I had seen it happen, but yes, it was still fairly new. I was still learning, but I could carry out the procedure. Okay, so let me, so then I want to ask the other part of the question. So. It's 1764, there's this huge smallpox epidemic. You jump in and try to help people. And then the next year, after Britain and a lot of people suffered because, as you said, that some people had to close their businesses, there are people that are just bouncing back from that. And then Britain comes in with the Stamp Act. And I never put those two together, but this feels like a situation where, you know, they call this reading the room. Britain wasn't reading the room. They weren't looking at the situation and go, this might not be the time to put an extra burden on them as they're just coming out of this other problem. Is that what it looked like? It seems that much of the happenings here have fallen on deaf ears for quite some time. And that probably starting even prior, even years before during the Seven Years' War, I think we can start to see how our government was not listening to our cries for help and of what our input was in terms of the colonists who had to live with these acts that were being passed and these governmental actions that were be taking upon us. But yes, I mean, that it seemed as just if we were just coming out of the epidemic and just as we had seemed to be right back on the right track and spring was about to happen, we received news that the Stamp Act was being passed. And it was almost a year to the date of from the Stamp Act being passed to essentially us having to start dealing with the smallpox epidemic the prior year. So it's quite disheartening to enter 1765 after so much turmoil and people closing their businesses, friends losing so much to then be slapped again 
with small acts, with by people, passed by people, mind you, who have no representation here. They do not live here. We did not vote for them to be in the House of Commons for us. And yet they are passing bills that they say will benefit the empire. And yet we are footing the bill. And that has been the case here for more than a decade. I can totally see why people would be so furious about the Stamp stamp Act, because in the future now, we hear about this, and we hear about the colonists being furious about the Stamp Act, and it seems unfair, and there's no representation, but it seems like maybe a lot of the colonists right there, because of the smallpox epidemic, may have, as far as what they would have been expecting, might have been just the opposite. Maybe they would have been expecting this would be the time for Mother England to come in and help. And instead, Mother England comes in and says, well, we don't really care about all your pox, regardless of the size. We're going to need some more of your money. We don't care. Just give, give, give. And I could see where you you just had to be furious. So what was your reaction to the Stamp Act? Like you said, I was furious. But, of course, as I mentioned, some of these actions and some of the reactions that we received from the mother country have been happening for more than a decade. They started a war with the French and the Indians here in North America, and because they couldn't supply enough troops, they would impress our own men from our own colony or in England and just travel up the Thames River and pluck citizens onto a warship to go serve some war that they never asked to be a part of. And then after we successfully defended the North American interests, after we proudly served our king and greatly (laughs) broadened the influence of Great Britain here in North America, they decided that we should just tax them. And instead of the self-governance that relied upon, those years when when I was a teenager, when I was at Harvard, and when I was just becoming a young man, we were self-governing ourselves. Most of the people who are in the positions of power here really had no say into what happened. It was always the voices of people. When they came in 1947, I was a young man. They tried to impress 50 Boston citizens off the street onto one of the ships that came in. And what would you, what did we, how did we react? We then went out and armed ourselves and took over the state house and told them that we would not allow any more government action until all 50 citizens were returned to their homes. I mean, in a town of 60 to 20,000 people, how did they expect 50 people not to be missing? And that's just one particular instance. And mind you, I was only about five or six years old when this happened. Now we fast forward to now being me and an adult and now trying to start my own medical practice. I had just been recently married to my wife who unfortunately left us just a couple of years ago. I was a young man trying to start a family and a business and trying to make something of myself. The pale-legged milk boy from Roxbury was trying to become more than that. I'll always know you now as a pale-legged milk boy. I do have pale legs still, but I mean, (laughs) nevertheless. Keep going. But the thing is, but the thing is, is that, okay, so we move on. We had an epidemic. Now we need time to establish a, a normalcy. And we weren't allowed that. We weren't allowed to think back even on the people we lost, the hundred or so souls that were lost to smallpox. We weren't allowed to deal with the people who were still sick and marked with the pox all over their bodies. And we weren't allowed to continue on in what we thought should have been. We, it, was, it was just another wave of what seemed like an insult. So although I stayed more physically removed from the happenings 
that occurred during 1765. I did tend to a lot of people who were wounded in the riots that occurred and towards the early fall of that year. I had met several friends who even voiced their opinions and stayed involved in those matters. But at the time, I didn't feel it was my place to voice everything that I had felt despite whatever heroics from the epidemic were attributed to me. There were far more established men who I trusted to be the voices of reason. Mr. Samuel Adams, Mr. James Otis, there are so many that I could name. And I think that time in particular is very frustrating for us here in Boston. And yeah. but I think I said this before, every, every couple or so years, it would seem an act would pass, then it would be established, and then it would be rebuked by the citizenry. And then it would go back to London. Hey, this, did, this was not working. Well, let's go try to pass another act. And then they would go through the House of Commons, and then it would reach the ministry, and then the ministry would advise the king. The king would say yay or nay, and then something would get passed. And then another, and then the next year, some, the Thomson Act, for example, in, in 1767 and 8. I mean, every couple of years, it seemed, we'd be dealing with another grievance with our mother country. So I think what these men who continue to fully support the British government are most aggravated by is that despite us forming our government, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress in Mandamus, despite us not seemingly be prepared to govern our people, we are more prepared or just as prepared as them. And they cannot control their citizenry. They are continuously also balking on the negotiations that we've established, the, the terms of even just evacuating our citizens from Boston. They still have Samuel Adams' son in Boston. He was cleared to pass the Boston Neck two months ago, but they keep him there because they know, I should say, Thomas Gage and his friends and those other British generals now, General William Howe and Sir Henry Clinton, they're all over there planning that say, we have a bargaining chip. We can take Samuel Adams' son and keep him here. That way, he, oh, wait, he is also the apprentice of Dr. Warren. Let's also keep him here and not have him serve as a surgeon, even though despite the fact that we serve both our American troops and any wounded soldier in the British Army, we will not turn away any sick or wounded on the battlefields, no matter what colors they wear in the field of fight. We are still brothers and sisters in this fight, but it is coming to a point now where we, all of these couple of year grievances, all of these things that have happened, we, like I said with Thomas Gage, or the friendly connections that we had may finally be severed soon. And I don't know if that will be within a few hours, in days, weeks, or months, but it is coming. And people need to be prepared that, unfortunately, people are becoming bargaining chips, resources are becoming bargaining chips, and people's rights are becoming bargaining chips. In every war, there are soldiers that create the carnage and the doctors that patch them up after. Warren was comfortable in both of these positions. As the Revolutionary War was heating up, he fought at Lexington Concord while his practice remained open. He was a reasonable man that believed in fairness, but when push came to shove, he did what was right regardless of the cost. 
In the next episode, you're going to understand why Warren had to fight even though everyone knew his skills were more valuable off the battlefield. You'll understand the reason he could not sit on the sidelines and how that reason gave the colonists an advantage that possibly led to America's ultimate victory. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History Podcast.